My guest today is Holly Whitaker, a New York Times bestselling author and founder of Tempest, who's here to talk with me today about the impact of alcohol on family dynamics in a society obsessed with drinking. I'm Whitney Goodman. Welcome to the Calling Home Podcast. I'm glad you're here. When I was working in addiction treatment centers, I saw a lot of people being labeled as irresponsible drinkers, or they were the problem in their relationships because of their alcohol abuse, despite everyone around them also drinking too, or even using drugs, but because they were able to quote unquote, control it or do it responsibly, they were not considered to have a problem with their substance use. And there's no denying that a lot of hurt and pain can be felt by everyone that's involved in these situations. But it's kind of crazy to me, the cultural messaging around drinking and how positive it is when we do hear countless stories of it having a negative impact on all sorts of relationships. And I hope this episode will help you just think about that a little bit more and even question how substances are being used in your own family. So I went on my Instagram and I asked people like, how has alcohol positively impacted your family and how has it negatively impacted your family? And I only got four actual responses, right? Of people being- To the positive one. Yes. I got a lot more responses, but they were people being like, you're an asshole for asking this question. I can't believe you would ask this. And there were people who were saying none and describing negative reactions, right? So the only positive things are really like- fun to bond with my dad. I've learned how to enjoy alcohol within limits. It's communal breaks down barriers and fears in communication. Those were the only positive ones, right? The negative, I obviously got like 700 over submissions (laughs) about how bad alcohol has been. Four versus 700. Yes. Yes. And these are really bad, right? My husband and I are separated because of it. Um, It told me that my parents needed something to escape. It ended my relationship, ruined our lives, ruined my childhood, took my beautiful, funny, kind mom. My dad was an active alcoholic. I never knew him. I mean, it's like so many of these. And this one I thought was interesting. My daughter saying to me, I hate it when you're drunk. And I was just a social drinker. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to know like what what you think about these responses, because I feel like we consider alcohol to be a bonding force sometimes in families or something that we do for fun. Is this surprising to you the way people responded? It actually is because I do think that we wouldn't drink as much as we did if it didn't actually have more than, you know, whatever that ratio is, you know, one to 200 less. We wouldn't drink the way that we do. I'm of a strong belief that like alcohol serves a purpose. I don't think it's like wholly evil, bad, um, and that we wouldn't incorporate it the way we do if it wasn't serving that purpose. So I do believe that there are benefits. And I think when we try and say there's no benefit, then we're actually denying like a really rich resource for why we would use it in the first place. Like that's like, that's a Mm -hmm. wealth of information that helps you to understand why it's so important and why it's lodged so firmly within our culture and all of our, you know, almost all of our communion. And so- Yeah, I think like that's the first comment that I have, which is I would expect there to be more than four. And I'm not surprised by the fact that there were 700. And I think on that, that's also just telling. It's just so telling because I I just, I know 
from my own personal experience of those that are close to me in either my friend group or my family group that struggle with it still or an active addiction, the absolute horror that it is, how it, I mean, and just from like also, by the way, you know, thousands of stories coming to me over the years, it feels so invisible still, the the damage that it causes. And it still feels so secret. And I think that's like the surprising piece of that is, of course, everyone has a story. And also, we still don't talk about that enough. No, I, I agree with you because it is, it's this crazy juxtaposition, right, of we know there's this huge negative impact on on families in, in a lot of ways, right? And we juxtapose that against the really positive, like, advertisements and culture that we see mm-hmm. around drinking yeah. that you almost feel like if your family can't handle it, there's a problem, right? We have these terms like the addict family, things like that, or you ostracize the member that cannot consume responsibly and you label them as the problem within the family. Yeah. And I love that you're using the word consume responsibly. Um, Yeah. Just because that's not, it's such an inaccurate, it's not responsible. They just happen to, with this one particular addictive substance, uh, they are able to control it and not be ruled by it. But also we don't even know if that's true, right? They're just, they're just not off the rails with it. They're just like, there's a a whole spectrum there. But I want to just be really careful to say what does responsible mean, right? When we say like they can consume responsibly, we're still putting it on an individual level and saying it's an individual's responsibility to consume this drug that's so heavily foisted upon us. And it, it again, like doesn't, it kind of removes like the alcohol industry and, and you know, societal issues as, as causal factors of, of why pe- people drink problematically in the first place. So anyway, um, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, I I, I uh, screenshotted. I think you shared this on Instagram that the alcohol industry says they want people to drink responsibly, but they don't define what that means. And if every adult in America drink according to the American federal guidelines for low risk drinking, alcohol industry sales would be cut by 80%. Yeah. And that number is like, it's, it depends on what years you look at, but it's in the like 50 to like 80% that like re- in terms of revenues that they would lose if people actually consumed within the guidelines. Most of their income comes from people that use it um, problematically, that use that are addicted to it. And so they don't want you to drink responsibly, right? They want you to drink absolutely irresponsible. Which is so wild when you think about it, because I guess what I've been contending with on an individual level is I have a two-year-old son, okay? And I've decided like, I don't want to drink around him. That was a decision that I made because I had an incident where a woman was drinking wine near my son and he said, what is that? And she said, oh, it's happy juice. And I cringed inside and I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to explain this consumption to my child? And I I ran through it in my head, like none of it makes sense. Why does mom drink this? What is it? What does it do for me? And it was a light bulb moment for me about like all the messaging that you talk about in your book that we receive about alcohol, right? Throughout our lifetime. And that all starts in the family for most people. It's like who introduces you to substances and how are those substances introduced to you? It's wild. 
It is wild. And then you also have people that I wrote about this, I think within the past year, just you also have people looking to Europe and different European countries that introduce alcohol consumption from an, a really early age, and then try and correlate that to lower rates of addiction without looking at the fact that like a lot of those countries have like socialized medicine, you know, like long parental leaves, you know, and different types of social supports, higher family integration. Like there's just so many different factors that exist. Um, but again, it is this, it's this really complex thing in America, specifically because of this one drug that's so promoted and also almost con- entirely defensible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> You do this thing in your book where you talk about alcohol, but you replace alcohol with cocaine, right? In in all yeah. of the sentences. And I also showed my husband that and he was like, wow, that is so jarring to think about it that way. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'd love to hear you explain like why you think when we put alcohol in the sentence, it makes sense to us. But when we replace it with anything else, even I think like marijuana, people kind of like shrink back at that. Freak out. Less now, but still, yeah. For sure. It's again like the cultural message that we've consumed and that we have, we've taken on and we've reinforced. And so it's just normal to us. I mean, you can essentially like convince a culture of any type of like belief. And our culture believes that alcohol is entirely healthy. It's something that a certain select number of people are allergic to and have a disease, the disease of addiction, which makes them unable to consume this super healthy you know, inert substance that is absolutely not problematic. You know, we blame the people, we don't blame the substance. And then we also have, you know, a a war on, you know, a a very, very longstanding war on drugs where, you know, that's, that's driven by different social factors, that's driven by racism, that's driven by classism, that's driven by all sorts of things where we have, you know, this really like arbitrary classification of certain types of drugs is bad as illicit. Illicit just means bad, like bad, not supposed to take, right? And that make these substances demonic and make the people that use them a different type of person. And then alcohol is this like very, very protected substance, primarily because so many of us consume it. And also primarily because there's a huge lobby and there's a, a huge, you know, capital interest that's backing it, the alcohol industry. And and so you have this very, very normalized, entrenched use of alcohol and you and then everything else. But 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 if you just also watch like around if you look at cannabis and are, you know, now that we can make money off of it, now that there's, you know, corporate interests, now that there is this like normalization of the consumption of it, the legalized consumption of it, you're also seeing those barriers break down and that normalization occur around it. And then you also see this with psychedelics. And and so it really is very arbitrary. It's, you know, because like also when you look at, you know, David Nutt did this study years ago that essentially, and he was the UK drug czar at the time, that essentially ranked based on harm to self and societal harm like the most dangerous drugs and alcohol was swimming at the top. And it's primarily swimming at the top because of the nature of the substance itself, but also because of the fact that it's so widely used. And also because of the fact that most of what happens, um, it's it's largely like the, the problems that are generated from alcohol consumption are largely felt by society. 
So yeah, I mean, it's just, there's a lot that goes into it, but you're right. Like if anybody, like even cigarettes, like if you, if you lit up at a party, if you were at a family party, you know, with kids around, maybe everyone's drinking, you know, alcohol. And then if somebody lights up a cigarette, I mean, it's just, if you can just imagine that scene and and how people would respond and react to that because our attitudes towards cigarettes have shifted dramatically over the past 80 years. Yeah, it's so true. I, I want to go back to what you're saying about like psychedelics, marijuana, things like that. Because I was listening to, um, I don't know if you know who Scott Galloway is, but he has a mm-hmm. podcast. He was talking about how he doesn't want to drink a lot anymore. And he's noticing that a lot of Gen Z people are moving away from alcohol and instead like doing mushrooms or doing other things after they've had one drink. Do you think that's a positive shift? Like, what's your attitude about that? I don't know enough about Gen Z. I do know that they're an an alcohol consumption. And there's like Mm. like anything else, you can massage the data to drive the message home that you want to. So there's plenty of articles that are pointing to data that says Gen Z is rejecting alcohol and drinking less. And then there's also articles that say they're not. Uh, But also, I think Gen Z grew up on social media. We know from like the last few months, like the CDC released their report that said, you know, like the social media and all of its corollary corollary causes of, you know, depression and suicidality in teens. And so they have a different type of addiction that they're dealing with. Um, And that stuff is addiction, you know, technology, screens, devices, all of that social media is is an addiction. Uh, We're using those devices addictively and and kids are from a really young age being exposed to addictive technology. And so I also think you can't really talk about their attitudes towards alcohol or, you know, whether or not, you know, there's like anecdotally, you know, like maybe some groups are, you know, rejecting alcohol because again, like, their parents' drug of choice. If you think about like who Gen Z's parents were like and like where alcohol consumption was when they were, you know, in their formative years. But I think, I think like it's, it's hard to really say like across an entire population um, why or what um, and what they're doing instead or that, you know, or make these like, you know, the alcohol industry is so powerful you know, I mean, if you look at like cigarettes and, and the tobacco industry, people still smoke. They still find novel ways to get people addicted to tobacco. I mean, just look at like what's happened with vaping. And so I think that I'm not worried about the alcohol industry losing customers because the generation is <laughs> right. growing up with different attitudes toward it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I hear some of these things though, about like, oh, people are moving away from alcohol and towards this, I guess as a, as a therapist, I'm always like, it's all the same thing to some degree. If you're using certain things to cope with life in a way that is detrimental to you. Like I remember when I would work in addiction, they would say like a drug is a drug and not really try to differentiate between what substances people were using. And it feels like there's always this narrative of like, I got to find a a safe way to detach from life, but the target just keeps moving around (laughs) on like what is considered safe. And we all have vices, right? That everybody uses to disconnect. But I guess what I see really in your work is that what you're talking about with alcohol is more about informed consent than anything and being honest about what alcohol is and what it does to you. So can you speak a little bit more about that? 
Yeah. And I just want to plug my friend Carl Fisher's work. He wrote a book called The Urge, and it's a tremendous and beautiful illustration of the history of addiction. Like we look right now and we look around and we think we're, you know, we don't think we are. We're in a, an addiction, you know, epidemic. You look at fentanyl and and opioids and alcohol and, you know, but um, he does a really great job of tracing the history and showing that there have been plenty of epidemics prior to our current time that existed with different types of substances. There's always like a substance of the moment that's like, you know, causing the most harm, mm-hmm. whether it's like, you know, the crack or, you know, today fentanyl and now Trank. So specifically to answer your question about what informed consent is around alcohol. So informed consent just means you understand. It's just like if you were to be prescribed psychopharmaceuticals, if you were to be prescribed Zoloft or an antidepressant, informed consent means that your doctor and you have a conversation that you fully understand what the consequences are of taking this, um, what the side effects are, you know, that it's going to be hard to taper off of. Um, it's, it's just this, I know what I'm actually putting into my body. I'm informed and I consent to doing that. And with alcohol, we don't have that because it's this thing again, like there's, there's so many factors, like for one, the idea of the alcoholic as being this, you know, specific type of person from birth has this potentiation for alcoholism. And the moment they meet alcohol, it's game over because they always had this in them and they are allergic to it. And they now have a chronic disease that they have to manage for the rest of their life. So this again, puts the blame on the individual and then tells us that the substance is totally fine. I mean, even though, by the way, if like the rates of addiction were known and we like the, the fact that we basically put every single human to the test to see whether or they're not an alcoholic, right? Like by <laughs> by just yeah. saying you are expected to try the substance and then figure it out, right? So, you know, I think when it comes to informed consent, there's none of that because one, again, there is this idea that it's a safe substance. There's just sick people. And then also it's just this rite of passage, right? We have so few rites of passage within our society. And, you know, one of them, one of the biggest ones, you know, there's, there's, you know, getting your period, there's graduating high school, there's getting a driver's license, there's, you know, there's so few celebrated rites of passage. Not that we celebrate getting our period, but um, (laughs) there's, there, one of the biggest ones is turning 21, becoming of age and being able to drink. And you are expected to go through this rite of passage. It is an anomaly if you turn 21 and you decide not to drink, right? And so it's this idea that you're just going to do this. And this idea that there's a small percentage of the population that will struggle with this. And therefore, there's no, there's no sit down of, you know, like in your, in in the years in which you might start using it, which is going to be, you know, in high school, there's no moment where there's an intervention and somebody is explaining to you, these are all of the things that consuming this will cause. What's assumed is that you'll be a responsible adult. You'll use this substance, you know, the way that you should. And it ends there. And for the most part, most people that drink don't actually understand all of the side effects that come with consuming personally and societally. So it's, it, it's not there because 
like it, it doesn't exist. We don't even have a model for it. There's not even nutrition labels or warning labels on on this product. It's so true. And I, I agree with you 100% on this. And I think like if someone's going to do something, uh, go skydiving, engage in any type of activity, like they should know the risks and they should be able to sign up for it and, and decide if they want to do it, right? The part that also trips me up is like people who try to kind of debate that alcohol is healthy in some way, right? Or they're extremely health conscious in other areas of their life, but will consume a lot of alcohol. And obviously, you know, we're empathetic to that. And there's a lot of like psychological things at play there. But the cognitive dissonance that happens sometimes in those moments to me is such a testament to like the brainwashing to some degree that has happened by the alcohol industry, that we can see all of this damage, prioritize our health in all these huge ways, but not be able to see that. But I mean, that happens all the time with a lot of different things. Yeah, of course. We choose not to know. And also it's kept from us. And also everyone else is doing it. Mm -hmm. And also it's normalized to consume this thing. And so, yeah, I mean, it's bizarre for sure, but it's also kind of in line with a lot of things that we do. You know, a lot of us still eat meat. It's not, it's no secret, you know, what, what, what like industrial (laughs) farming of animals is doing to the environment. We still drive gas cars. We still fly and play. There's so much stuff that we still do even though we know it's terrible either for us or for our future. Um, so it's just, it's not surprising at all. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get like so frustrated knowing all of this being awake to it and kind of living in this world? I don't get frustrated by alcohol anymore. I think that I used to, I spent a long time being extremely frustrated by it. I think that there were years where it was just like, it was just like constantly seeing you know, like health icons, you know, like I talk about this in my book, like watching the way that, you know, like in Goop Health, like their conference is subsidized by an alcohol company and they have, they promote, you know, like different drinks and wines and they're, it's supposed to be a wellness organization, not even like just wellness, it's hyper wellness. It is, you know, going to the extreme of, of what we go to in order to preserve our health and balance and, and, and then you have this toxic substance that's being promoted within it. Um, and stuff like that used to just, it, it felt like every day I would hear something, I'd see something, it would just drive me wild. And then I would post on Instagram or I'd write an essay in response. And I don't feel that anymore. Um, and I'm not really sure why. I think like it's in part because it's just exhausting <laughs> to, to like be that triggered all the time. But I also think it's because there's been a shift in attitudes. Like at the very beginning, when I started, when I started posting about alcohol, you know, there was stuff like Well Plus Good would like, you know, post about their like cucumber, CBD, you know, post sauna elixir and um, like with vodka, right? And, and it would just be maddening. And um, they were promoting this as like a healthy thing to do, you know, taking this like dehydrating drug you know, after you've, you know, purged like, all of your hydration. So like stuff like that. And I would then, you know, we reposted on my Instagram and I would be like, everyone go to this post and like pile on and get them to change. And I think that there was, I used to get so much more angry about it because I really felt very, very powerless 
in changing the narrative. But I think that that has largely shifted. There's plenty of people that are extremely aware of the of what it means when a when a celebrity like Jennifer Lopez, who has talked for years about not drinking, creates an alcohol brand, right? Like there is plenty of people that now see that and are upset by that and are going to speak to that. I had no idea she did that. <laughs> That's right. wild. She did. <laughs> <laughs> That's really wild. <laughs> right. And <sighs> and also she's married to like one of the most famous alcoholics, right? So it's just like, yeah, I don't need to say it anymore because there's plenty of people that understand and the tide is shifting. I think what I get more frustrated about now is kind of one thing that you were saying a minute ago. A drug is a drug. Mm-hmm. A drug is a drug. I think that one of the things that I'm more frustrated out and and also where my energy is going is trying to expand this definition. Of, I, I think that there are the very clear suspects of like who has a problem. And it's like people that use typically substances you're not supposed to be addicted to for whatever reason, like gambling or porn or, and then there's everyone else right? And if we look at like our social media usage or our consumerism or anti-aging practices or our like hustle culture, like there's so many different areas where we are not identifying that that's addiction. And we still have this binary of bad addiction versus like socially accepted and, and promoted addiction, like to work, to success, to accumulating wealth. And so I think that I'm far more interested now. I think like the alcohol stuff is going to take care of itself. I think, I don't know, (laughs) but I think it's an overall, like there is still this really big divide between these are the people that need to watch themselves and like be in recovery forever and they're sick. And then there's the rest of society. And if you look at like what we're doing, I mean, it's the definition of insanity, right? It's it's the definition of addiction. Like we are doing things with short-term benefit of long-term cost. Um, in so many different ways. And I think that that's far more interesting now than just this one substance is being able to look and implicate everybody in it and therefore give everybody the option to actually make changes to, you know, free themselves and, and hopefully change the narrative that we're in, you know, as a global family. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And I'm glad that you are taking that on to some degree. It's, it's a big thing to, start talking about this because I know when I just started talking about like positivity and manifestation, like people would lurch on me for trying to go against that in any way. And I feel like alcohol is an even bigger beast than that, that some people are like, are you crazy? Oh, you spoke negatively about manifestation. Negatively. Yes. Okay, yes. I was like, I thought yes, you were going to, no. <laughs> I thought no, it was the other no, no, thing. No, no. Yes. <laughs> You're like, get, I need to get off this podcast right now. <laughs> I was going to say, great. No, I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> um, no exactly. Exactly. And I, I do think it's like, don't take away my manifestation. Don't take away my, yeah. my, yeah, my spiritual, right. And it's the same, but I think that there is something really beautiful in this. It's like, it look, it looks like a punishment. Like when you, when you call people out on these things, not call them out, right. Because it's nobody's job to police other people. And I think that's like really where it comes down to like that your comment about informed consent is like really hits the mark because it is up to us. I really do believe in an individual so long as they're not harming other people, like they're allowed to do whatever they want to do with their bodies, right? And that includes putting food into it, drinking, doing drugs, 
fucking whoever they want, you know, like whatever you want to do with your body. And it is your choice. That has to remain. I think that that's one of the most important things because I don't, I think like part of why we are so sick is because we don't have control over our bodies. I think part of the reason that we need to numb and escape is because we have all these rules to navigate of what we can and can't do or allowed to do. And we don't really have this like full autonomy to make decisions. We're not trusted to make decisions. And so I think that that's like a huge piece of this, which is that it really has to be up to the individual. We have to trust individuals to make the right choices. And then at the same time, we also are doing no one any favors by not being extremely clear about what things are extremely harmful and giving people the full amount of information to make those choices from and to make those choices with. And so it sure, it sucks, you know, like you're the one that's like saying alcohol is bad. I mean, it's, I would not say it's been great for my social life. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But I, I think that in all of these things, like talking about technology and, and social media, talking again about like breaking up with, with, uh, you know, one of the things that I'm writing about this week and, and it's been so painful, but is it is not going to be some government that actually fixes the mess that we're in. It really does come down to the individual choices that we make. And we have to make a lot of uncomfortable decisions pretty fast. And I think that that is, no one wants to hear that, you know, and, and whether it's alcohol or anything else. And so it's, yeah, it's it's hard, but it also is it's a portal. Like looking at these things that we do that are extremely, you know, harmful to ourselves or harmful to other, and going through the process to to modify that is such a, an opportunity. The less we want to do it, kind of more important it is to do. That's so true, and I I want to piggyback on what you just said about like informed consent. It's your choice, what you put in your body, all of that. I I 100% agree with. And I think the weird thing about alcohol that I hear is from people is like, it's not hurting anyone. I'm the one that's drinking it, right? And we all have kind of evolved. (laughs) Sure. It's crazy, right? But I mean, I was, when I worked in addiction treatment, I remember people would say to me like, oh, I I drink because I like the taste. And I'm like, you blew up your whole life you're here, you lost your job because you like the taste, like not possible, you know, or it's not hurting anyone. Like these really just kind of watered down beliefs about it that keep us stuck and don't let us see the pain. And I feel like with cigarettes, we have now come to understand like no secondhand smoke is a thing. I can get other people sick. And I see that with alcohol too, that if you engage, especially in you know, excessive drinking around children, driving in your home. We know all these negative outcomes are there, right? Most domestic violence, all this stuff happens under the influence a lot of the time. And so I feel like that's one way when we think about this from a family perspective is like, we have to shift our thinking as like, when I consume this into my body, it doesn't just impact me. It impacts all the systems around me. And so if I'm going to consume this this thing in an informed way, I have to do it in a way that has the least amount of destruction for my life. You know, I can still see my conditioning that I'm under this like responsibility umbrella still here. But I'm wondering like, if it would help some people to shift their thinking that way, that this isn't just about me, it's about the people around me as well. Well, I mean, the first thing I want to have is compassion for somebody that's drinking excessively to the point where it's actually like, let's just take a person that's drinking in a family system. 
and what the stress that that causes, you know, it is like seen as the selfish disease and seen as like specifically this one thing, you know, there's plenty of things that people do that fuck their families up. And this one thing, addiction is, you know, it's, it is the one area where you're allowed to just, you know, say this person's a fuck up, this person is ruining the family and blame everything on the addict and say, you know, and, and really, so I, I have like a very, you know, that my first reaction to that is like, we, but we have no problem blaming people, for blaming addicts for ruining families, right? Like, absolutely, it is like the first and last story. And, you know, I think like, I, I told this story in my book, I think I told it in my book, but when I came out to my family, I th- at first I thought I had borderline personality disorder. And one of the things uh, to manage borderline personality disorder is quit drinking. And I, that for me, you know, when I told my family, I said, look, I think I have borderline personality disorder and I also need to stop drinking. And then when I started drinking again, you know, they were just like, well, we bought books, you know, and like, it was just like the extent of like their involvement in it was limited because I had done this to myself. I mean, it was a firsthand experience that I think is pretty universal to people that are trying to quit drinking. And uh, from having that experience, and it absolutely caused my family a lot of pain, not as much as some other people have, um, definitely not as much as some other people have, but enough. And I think even the degree of which I was blamed for what I was going through is so humiliating and so painful and so lonely and so unhelpful. <laughs> so I think like before I say anything else, like I, I do want to say, you know, it addicts are all, you know, and I use ad I don't I use addict here to just like paint the picture of like, but people that that struggle with right. with alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder, they're blamed to begin with. So I don't think we need to like amp that up that like they mm-hmm. are responsible for ruining their families or causing their families harm. But what you do when you step back and you have, you know, that 30,000 foot view, you do know that most of the stuff that like, you know, there's a lot of, you know, first degree harm that happens to the human. There's, you know, like liver failure, cirrhosis or uh, cancers or whatever. I mean, there's like so many things that it fucks up for a, an individual. But then when you actually scope out, it's called secondhand drinking the same way as there's secondhand smoking because there's so many social casualties. There's there's drunk driving accidents, like you said. It's involved, like a you know, like a high percentage of violent crime has alcohol related to it. High percentage of sexual assault has alcohol correlated. There's domestic violence, high correlation. Um, so there's, there's so much that happens that is when, when we consume alcohol, the way we do in this country that happens to other people. And I want to say, I can't remember, I can't, I'm not familiar with the statistics anymore, but it's, it's up there. It's high. And it's, I want to say, I mean, like, if you look at the history of, of what happened to actually tip the scales on cigarette smoking, it was this idea that we were taking away like we were like the infringement on on the innocent bystander other people's rights and that was like the secondhand smoke piece of this was a huge tipping point and what drove tobacco to be what it is today and we don't have that and i don't know why i don't know why when everybody has a story and it's worse than smoking like not to downplay 
second, like what happens, like asthma or emphysema or cancer from secondhand smoke. But when we're talking, you're getting beat in your home, you know, you're getting raped or whatever it is that happens, or, or, or you're just watching your violent, you know, father or your, you know, whatever it is that you are witnessing because of or exposed to or vulnerable to because of someone else's drinking. I don't know why we're not mad about that enough yet. I don't know why. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking too. And I, I like the piece that you're bringing up about having empathy for the person that is being called the addict, is calling themselves an addict because they do end up being the punching bag in the end. And, and as a yeah. family therapist, I believe a lot of times that person is just the container for all the dysfunction that's happening around them. For all the family. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So it's not like if we remove them, everything's going to be fine. It's like, no, no. they are the, the piece that's screaming like, we need help here. Something is going on. Yeah. They're the open wound. Exactly. But for anyone listening to this, that's maybe doesn't consider themselves, you know, anywhere even near that addict camp, right? I think even thinking about how does alcohol impact my relationships? Is that when I usually fight with my significant other? Am I really short with my kids when I do that? And looking at like, if I'm just drinking a lot on Wednesday night and I wake up in the morning and I'm short with my kids and I'm yelling at them, like, it's not just me putting it in my body. And that was a big like inventory moment for me is like, how is this impacting other areas of my life? where I want to be successful. And you have a really awesome line about this in the book that I cannot remember about. Like, really the question is not like, are you an addict? Are you an alcoholic? But is this getting in the way of areas of my life? And should yeah. I do something about it? Yeah. Is it stealing from me? Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's, I mean, it is, it's such a like, because it is the wrong question to ask whether or not I'm an alcoholic. And, you know, I think it's such a stupid question. I think if you even ask the question, Cheryl Strayed recently wrote, oh, I can't remember the name of it. It was so beautiful. And I'll give it, I'll send you the link so you can put it in your show notes. But like, I think it's like the problem without a name or, right? Because like, it's just that uneasiness, right? It's just that, ooh, like something here is interesting. If I'm even asking the question or if I'm even considering it, if it even just, you know, like is interesting to me, hmm, alcohol, whether or not, you know, do I do it? Is it causing, you know, like just the, that we're even questioning it because there's, you know, there's stuff that like we all do that some people can't do that we do fun, like, and it doesn't even like cross our radar. You know, there's plenty of stuff that I do, you know, that like, like for instance, like I can keep chocolate in my house, you know? And I think like, that's, that's something that, I think for somebody might that might be like mind blowing, right? That they like feel like they can't keep chocolate in their house it might be a trigger for like a, you know, like a binge and purge session or I like there's just stuff that we all do normally that other people can't do because of our wiring or because of, you know, what whatever it is. And I think that that's one of those things that just like if you if you if it feels like it's a little difficult for you, right? And just a little dip, if alcohol feels just a little difficult for you. If it feels a little uncomfortable, I think that that's an invitation to interrogate. And most people, I think, are really terrified to do that. I think that's changing, but because it's so tied into belonging, it's so tied into intimacy, it's so tied into relationships, 
either romantic relationships or family relationships or friend relationships. It's everything. It's everywhere. It's all the time. And there's there's times where I, you know, I haven't had a drink in 10 years. There's times where plenty of times where I just wish I fucking did because it would just make my life so much easier in terms of having, you know, like that belonging moment. Yeah. You know, you said about your social life earlier and we laughed, but I think it is such a serious big thing for people that like alcohol becomes the the symbol of all the things, right? The celebrations, the connection, the relationships, especially for young people that your life is is almost centered around alcohol. You know, you're meeting people at the bar, you're dating, you're doing whatever. I I remember it being that way for me and how hard it would be to think about it being another way. I did find the question that I had highlighted though that you said people should ask themselves, where did it go? I want to read it so people have it, but we should be able to ask ourselves these simple questions and answer honestly. Does alcohol negatively impact my life? And if so, should I take steps to address my relationship with it? I think that's like the best way of putting it. It's yeah. not, are you an alcoholic or not? Yeah. But just like, does it fit in my life right now where yeah. I'm at today? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there was something you were saying. I want to be clear. The reason my social life was deeply impacted, just not to scare anybody away that's thinking about quitting drinking, was because I became extremely annoying about alcohol. Like that, that's why. Like not that, well, that's why I asked you if it was frustrating to you because I feel the frustration building in me. Like as I'm reading your book, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get angrier and angrier about yes. this. Yeah. In a good way, in a passionate way. But I mean, like every conversation (laughs) I had was like, do you, you know, and, you know, and it was my, it was my job, right? Like I, right, right. A company that was like a digital rehab. And I was, when I was raising money for it, I go to all these venture capital events that were hugely like alcohol centric. And I'd walk up and I'd like be like, and everyone's like, what's your company about? And everyone's like, got a drink in their hand. And I'd be like, I have a company that helps people stop drinking and then everyone gets fucking weird, you know? And that's like, that is like the most perfect encapsulation of what my life was like for, and still is to some degree like. Um, So, but like just giving up alcohol gave me a different standard for relationships and made me work for them for like belonging and and not earn or work for, but like it, it made me seek a type of belonging that is far more sustainable. I have a better I would say like there's a cost, but there's also a benefit to it. So I just want to be clear just so that it's like not putting drinking didn't ruin my social life. Being in recovery hasn't. Yeah, I imagine there's just a, a transition period, right? Like with anything where you're getting used to navigating the world yes. and your relationships without that thing. And, and once you come out the other side, it's like, oh, wow, this is much better. But that that transition period, I, I feel like that's it's so much better, right? Healing anything. You know, there's that ugly middle. With anything, because exactly. you're losing an identity. Exactly. Right. It's liminal. You like you shed an identity completely and you're not that anymore. And you're not the next thing. And you have to navigate that. And you, of course, you know, lose lots of things. But you do that if, you know, you go through any kind of major life transition. Well, thank you so much. I think this episode is going to be eye-opening and hopefully just helps people. I want to encourage people just to question things a little bit and, and continue to be like, how does this fit into my life? How is it impacting my family, my relationships? And then how can I make an informed decision from there? So thank you for helping us do that. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been fun. Thank you. Is there anything that you're up to lately or over the next few months that you'd like to share with us? 
No, I am. Well, I write regularly on Substack. I've taken a break for the last six weeks, but I write regularly, like a weekly column on Substack. I'm working on my second book, which we talked a little bit about today. It's about essentially navigating, you know, like these times and also through the lens of addiction and like really giving everybody permission to, to question what's not working in their life, you know, beyond alcohol. I think uh, I have a podcast called Quitted that we're going to fire up in the future, but I, a lot of things that are in the making, but nothing that, you know, beyond writing on Substack yeah. that anybody can have access to immediately. Awesome. Well, I love your Substack. You're a wonderful writer. Thank so you. I encourage anybody to go check that out. And we'll, of course, share all of that in the show notes as well. Thank you again for coming on. Thank you so much. It's been fun. 